0: Welcome. You're listening to the Gideon Warrior Radio Network. Look for us on TalkShoe.com. Type in keyword Gideon Warrior Network. And you can find us and other Israelite speakers at ChristianAmericanMinistries.com and AngloIsraelTruth.com. Please remember, your free will gifts and offerings help us to continue laboring in the vineyard. Please consider visiting our support page. We thank you for visiting our network insights. It is our prayer you'll be edified by them. Here's the message, and thanks for listening. This is Part 8 of the series, What's Wrong with America. We're going to be retracing our steps, returning to Part 1. Remember, we were going to place what's wrong with America firmly at the feet of his people, his chosen. I know this is not a popular position to take, and it certainly is not a popular discourse, as most Americans have adopted a view that someone or something else is to blame for their condition. Remember how we reviewed Christ's admonition that he had not come to destroy the law? Yes, well, this is where we will begin in our undertaking to clearly shine the light and place at the foot of his people in America, their various transgressions of the law. Now sin, we discovered, at 1 John 3, 4, is the transgression of the law. In part 1, we discovered the abstination command to Adam in the garden was to prevent sure and certain death. This was an individual responsibility and life preservation instruction. This self-responsibility and life preservation is fundamental in one's understanding of individual free-agency attributes of God. We are taught in Scripture that His people are not in bondage to the law, or in essence subject to certain death by it. Again, if His people are not bound by the law, what is the necessity of writing it upon their hearts? The individual responsibility to obey God's laws is a voluntary free-will departure, from a known rule of rectitude or duty. In part 7, we revealed from Christ's Sermon on the Mount a 12-step program in righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees for kingdom of heaven citizenship. Greatness or righteousness is a kingdom of heaven reward for those who keep and teach the least of these known rules of rectitude and duty. So the question becomes, How are God's chosen, His people, violating these known rules of rectitude and duty to the commands of God? It appears Christians, or I should say much of the church world today, seems to be contented with elevating all manner of distresses felt by them on some other group or political association or such other handy target. While they are basically ignoring the weightier matter, of their distress, or, as Christ told us, the weightier matters of the law. This is in direct contradistinction to the wise proverb of 1434, and I quote, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people, End quote. God's people's security is bound by devotion and obedience to his law, Scripture is replete with historical account of the enemies of God's insatiable appetite to devour his people. The words of Timothy Dwight, as preached on the fourth day of July, 1798, are profoundly insightful, but rare considerations amongst the many professed Christians of America. Listen, as I quote, Religion and liberty are the meat and drink of the body politic. Withdraw one of them, and it languishes, consumes, and dies. If indifference to either, at any time, becomes the prevailing character of a people, one half of their motives to vigorous defense is lost, and the hopes of their enemies are proportionally increased. Here, eminently they are inseparable. Without religion we may possibly retain the freedom of savages, bears, and wolves, but not the freedom of New England. If our religion were gone, our state of society would perish with it, and nothing would be left which would be worth defending. Our children, of course, if not ourselves, would be prepared as the ox for slaughter, to become the victims of conquest, tyranny, and atheism. Another duty to which we are also eminently called is an entire separation from our enemies. Among the moral duties of man none hold a higher rank than political ones, and among our own political duties none is more plain, or more absolute, than that which I have now mentioned. The two great reasons for the command are subjoined to it by the Saviour, that ye be not partakers of her sins and that ye receive not of her plagues. And each is a reason of incomprehensible magnitude. God's people in America have disregarded these historical truths and understandings recorded by the apostles and those in our more recent past. Antichrist imposters have been waging a battle to abrogate God's design in choosing Abraham and his descendants, to be a servant nation, demonstrating to the nations the wisdom of his ordered creation. In order to know what's wrong with America, God's people in America must understand their kingdom relationship, acknowledge their sins, and humble themselves before God in repentance. What is the essence of his people's violation that now separates them from him while the wicked ones establish a firm foothold for the shackles their transgressions will set upon them. In our current times it appears nothing has been more devastating to his people than the erroneous belief and doctrinal teaching we expounded on in part one of that of law versus grace. It shall be summarized here in the words of Paul at Romans 6 16. Quote, Know ye not, that to whom you submit yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Quote. The advantage that the man of Christ now holds is the re-established advocacy for sin through Christ. To replace law with grace is an inappropriate theological teaching, the grace by which extolled his people's salvation did not, nor does it, disregard law to do so. Disregard of God's law must of necessity result in your obedience to whatever law is to fill the vacuum. Hence the warning we delivered in parts 1 and 7 from Matthew six twenty-four. The departure from individual responsibility and service to God requires the individual to serve another, and so Christ warns that you cannot serve two masters. God's people in America have and are rejecting God and are in service to the master they serve. What master are they serving? And does it not follow that they subsequently are violating therefore the first command not to have any gods before him? Most of God's people in America are in error believing God's people have forgotten their constitutional rights or that the nation needs to get back to and follow the Constitution. However, if you are honest with yourself, you would have to come to one of two conclusions. Either America's Constitution had significant flaws, which in the passage of time men desiring to rule versus to be ruled, have perverted, twisted, or outright subverted, or, two, they have indeed forgotten God's laws, which some state was the foundation for the American Constitution in the first place. It follows, therefore, that God's people in America have replaced their God with a false God, That false god is what America cherishes and reveres, its American Constitution. I know many immediately react to that statement with utter contempt and reject the message without further contemplating its efficacy. It is clear that God's people in America were manipulated into trading or surrendering God-given liberty and protection for constitutional protection. I believe a listener of this message will have removed the mote in his eye so he can again see clearly to render aid and edification to his brother. Do not misunderstand, as merely saying this is not to be construed as a blanket indictment upon many of the great men who had a role in it. A long history of abuses from generation to generation has its toll, and men will become moved to change their station in life. The words of the Unanimous Declaration of Independence brings this po- point clearly into focus, and I quote, All experience hath shown mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. Quote. This predisposition of suffering is an acute acknowledgment that what is or was currently being done is not working. Remember, God's immutable instruction is to choose life. And as we discussed in Part 1, the greatest gift bestowed by God upon man is that free agency or free will. Having this free agency attribute of God, it becomes clear His primary purpose of the law is for the individual to choose life. What most do not know or fail to recognize is that at the time of America's Constitution, the world had from time to time, in various geographical locations, drafted constitutions. One such record of this is an 18 volume work entitled Constitution of the Countries of the World. The point being, constitutions were not new. The framers of the American Constitution, the historical record reflects, seem to have a strong foundation of biblical understanding guiding in the principal formation. However, the document itself makes no acknowledgement of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It makes no reference to or contains any provision for qualifications for service, other than age and place of habitation and birth. Additionally, it excludes punishments for ex- executive, judicial, or administrative fa- malfeasance. As we have learned, individuals are responsible to God. God what is the accountability mechanism of that document one may be inclined to say it is by election well this is true however an election process that does not embody the biblical qualification requirement of god's divine law will again lend itself quite handily to manipulation outright fraud and or corrupting influences The greatest historical mass migration of God's people to the shores of the North American continent is universal in nature, as it is the natural byproduct of one's birth, that being to live. The act of choosing life is subsequently determined by the actions individually undertaken in the process of choosing life. If someone else is to arbitrarily dictate to another how that process is to occur, it will immediately oppress the individual command given to choose life. The only dictate to govern in commands of an individual is the command from the giver of all life, that being the command of God. Now some may be quick to say, okay, okay, we get all that. But man is imperfect, and therefore incapable of really doing good and following God's law, and this is why we have a new covenant of grace. Well, question. Given man's incapable nature just stated, why such incessant call from Scripture to do so? The answer is really not that terribly difficult. A very good summation is found in Blackstone's commentaries at 139, and I quote, Man considered as a creature must necessarily be subject to the laws of his Creator, for he is entirely a dependent being. A being independent of any other has no rule to pursue, but such as he prescribes to himself, consequently as a man depends absolutely upon his Maker for everything, it is necessary that he should in all points conform to his Maker's will. End quote. All our individual actions are predicated upon whom we observe and are obedient to for our existence. The wicked one seeks for our existence death, as the terms of obeisance are redirected to it. No longer is the word of God as simple as the creation we acknowledge around us and how it reveals to us all that is necessary in acknowledgment of his creation. Should one question or test his power? Just observe the immensity of his creation. Would you care to contemplate his wisdom? Consider, if you will, the unyielding order his uncomprehendable creation is governed. Should one lack understanding of his grace? Consider the abundance of daily sustenance within his creation. Have you an occasion to question his mercy? Certainly by his power he abstains from withholding that abundance from even the unthankful and unworthy. Or is it simply man is questioning his will? I submit to you his goodness evident in all his creation, is our benevolent code of conduct it is time once again for god's people in america and indeed around the world to stop questioning what god is through their piety and indolence and look no further than his creation god's people in america and the world are sinking ever deeper into the abyss of self-aggrandizement and man's laws that they have ignored the weightier matter of their existence for the will of their Creator. This peculiar people, referred to in Scriptures such as Exodus nineteen five, Deuteronomy fourteen two, and twenty six eighteen, and Titus two fourteen and first Peter two nine, are to be the standard bearer of the national command given at Deuteronomy four six to eight, and I quote. Therefore be careful to observe them, God's statutes and judgments, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so nigh unto them, and what a great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law? which I set before you this day, quote. Now, later in this book of Deuteronomy, at chapter 5, 12, and 19, these laws were to be kept and observed forever. You see, God's children who formed other nations around the globe have been calling unto those in America, warning them of the plight they have witnessed in their countries of Europe, Britain, Ireland, Australia, Canada, Scotland, etc., loss of individual freedoms, burdensome taxation, fiat currencies, inability to defend one's person, papers and effects, rampant crime, and deviant immorality. Unfortunately, they, like God's people in America, have not humbled themselves in righteous acknowledgment that it is not just an issue of legislatively banning a right to bear arms or creating a social welfare system or taxation and the whole host and train of abuses and usurpations, but rather a generation of people who know not the Lord God of Israel, as Judges 2, 7 to 11 records for us. Some from these nations have called unto America not to do with this national health care system, or to avoid these mass transit systems, or not to give up our guns, etc., all the while ignoring the weightier provision of the law. This abrogation, neglect, and outright disregard of God's divine laws will of necessity be His people's fall from a great nation to a nation whose fall was great. Now remember, we must not forget that there is a wicked one, Matthew thirteen nineteen tells us, and the children of the wicked one, Matthew 13, 38. And they, according to Christ, are the tares amongst the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom, he declares, are the children of the good seed, sown by the Son of Man. At the close of this 13th chapter of Matthew, at verse 52, Christ extolled a virtue of a scribe, And I quote, Therefore, every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasures things new and old. Now, a householder is simply a chief over a family or a head of a household. But more important in this verse is the scribe who is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven. We learn from Scripture, as well as other resources, such as Haley's Bible Handbook, that throughout antiquity, scribes were a class of people who copied and recorded documents and information, and primarily it was the Scriptures. Over time, however, these people became more influential. During the Babylonian exile, the scribes became interpreters and teachers of the law. However, instead of preserving and protecting the record and application of the law, they began to expound upon it and add unto it. Christ engaged in a litany of scourges against those who, in essence, built a wall around the law, which obscured its true meaning or principle. He condemned them as shutting up the kingdom of heaven against men, neither going in themselves or allowing others to go in, at Matthew 23.13, and calling them hypocrites. Again, he calls them out for their using the law to devour widows' houses. Verse 14. I'm sure we've all known someone in our lives who was convinced by long pretexts how a widow should purge herself of the riches of her husband's estate for a heavenly crown. Christ then describes, at verse 15, their practice of compassing sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, they make him twofold more child of hell than themselves. The purpose for digressing momentarily into a historical context of the scribes and Pharisees is to once again bring to the frontlets of God's children, his chosen, into their mind the very nature of the wicked one's purpose, to kill, steal, and destroy. God's law is perpetual. However, just recently a doctrine has been introduced excusing man from this world, which essentially divorces God's children from the laws of God. This, in essence, allows God's people, his chosen, to essentially act on their own legislative will instead of God's. In a principle recited by Christ at Matthew seven seventeen to 19 these laws are the will of his Father, and they shall pass the test of time, Again, at Matthew seven twenty-four, twenty-five, 25 having been built upon the rock of our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, over whom this king reigns forever. What this means is that presumptuous scribe or Pharisee or any individual for that matter acts in a manner contrary to this divine command and law is to be immediately removed and punished for this individual conduct against God's laws or legislative enactments. In Part 1, we covered in fairly great detail the continued application of God's law and the proclamation of Christ, that as long as the earth exists, not one provision shall pass from the divine laws of God, Matthew 517 17-18. Now, as we attempt to bring this all the way and lay it at the feet of his people, we need to acknowledge that the religious world of today acknowledges a resurrection, From the dead into eternal life, even a future state of reward or punishment. Most, however, are completely unaware of what binds the state of reward or punishment. I submit to you the body of evidence scripture contains to reveal them both. First, Paul instructs at Romans 6.23, as did Christ, the gift of God is eternal life. What therefore shall be the measure? Shall one who does wickedly receive the same reward as one who violates God's will unto death? After all, we are constantly told by the scribes and Pharisees today that God loves the sinner, but hates the sin. However, at Romans 2.13, there is just one example of the principle of the just and the unjust, and I quote, for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. End quote. And 2 Corinthians 5.10 teaches that judgment, quote, according to what he has done, whether it be good or bad. End quote. John tells us how they that have done good shall come forth to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. Again, Revelation 20, 12-14, sees the dead, small and great, stand before God, and I quote, And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things, which were written in the books according to their works, and they were judged every man according to their works. It is clear, and should be clear to all God's people, the immutable nature of God's laws, if God's people lead themselves, or are led by the wicked ones, twofold more sons of hell, into disregarding and not observing to do God's will, instructed through his laws and commands, What will be the consequence by the natural law revealed in scripture? there are punitive ramifications we discussed in part one some of those but also those just revealed in this part eight. It is a known rule of rectitude, now written on the hearts for which there is no escape in our resurrected state. Now you know what is wrong with America. You know who it is that's doing it, and even why it is happening. God's children have transgressed the laws of God and have taken for themselves the laws of Baal. This lawless impostor Baal has once again abrogated God's design in choosing Abraham and his descendants to be a servant nation, in demonstrating to the nations the wisdom and understanding of this godly order. It is the incessant object of destructive design for the wicked one, and the wicked seed has ascended the throne of administrations wherever God's people are in the world as its prized position. God's people in America functioned in large part on this North American continent with God's laws firmly intact for as many as three, four, or five hundred or more years as the archaeological record has come to reveal. The one thing they lacked was an established medium of exchange acceptable to all the colonists. And what emerged instead was a constitution, the meaning of which is today undefinable, and the scope of which has no limitation. It is as if it was deliberately struck so as to silently and methodically enslave a once free, vibrant, moral, industrious people into a docile, vacillating, and immoral people. It is only a remnant of these people who will have eyes to see and ears to hear but it is all God's people's duty to speak and remain no more silent. Second Chronicles 7.14 is that call. I quote, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. End quote. If this message of 2nd chronicles seven fourteen is not being taught and not being spoke from the pulpit daily you need to find another church these are the scribes who have god's law who have the knowledge of god's law they are the educated ones in the scriptures and they are hiding this law and you must come out of her and partake not. Thanks again to Pastor Peters for his fight of faith in this opportunity to minister unto the children of the new covenant as Hebrews 8.8 informed us of. This is Doug Nelson, trusting you will hear these words one day. Well done, thou good and faithful servant.